Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back, everybody, to Savage to Sage. This is Daniel, the host. And today I have the joy of being joined by Sonny Lou Williams, who is the president of TechServe Corporation. Welcome, Sonny Lou. Thank you, Daniel. Happy 2023, everyone. Yeah, to you as well. I have to get used to saying that for sure. (laughs) It's definitely been quite a a doozy to start the year, but I especially have been excited about this show just because I've heard bits and pieces of your story, getting to know you through our mutual connection at Started Up Foundation. And um, started up. (laughs) Yeah. Shout out to Started Up Foundation. I probably should, I probably should get Don on here at some point too. Please do. That would be good. So I like to just start by you sharing a bit about TechServe, just the elevator pitch, you know, what do you all do in short? And then also, if you could lead into that of how did you end up there? Because I know, (laughs) I know you you have an awesome story around that. And um, where do you came from before that? So please, please share away. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and the opportunity to um, chat a little bit about our company and our awesome team and really the journey. Um, So TechServe is a project management consulting firm, and we specialize in public health, public education, and public safety. And what we do is really um, the, the tagline is implementing great ideas. So organizations that are innovative, that are looking at doing their systems and processes and the way they conduct, quote unquote, day to day in their industry, they approach us about how do we do this differently? So in other circles, it's called systemic change management. In other circles, it's considered just business process redesign. We like to frame it as overall project management and consulting because we get into the nitty gritty of a lot of things that are, uh, oh, you do have to do this particular component (laughs) in order to get full-on change management. So over the years at TechServe, in doing this work, we've added a marketing agency because communication is vital to change and consistent communication is vital to strategy and direction. We've added um, a full-on business process portfolio. So all of the great tool sets that are out there like um, in the assessment and survey design industry, uh, where SurveyMonkey and Qualtrics shop. In the um, overall analytics side, we use a whole suite of different academic research tools on analytics and also just good marketing analytics tools as well to support the bridging between the workforce training, the overall social engagement, and this whole digitization of all of the above to be able to access that content and to measure that efficacy long-term. So we really are a comprehensive shop that looks at specifically what is the project, what is the change driver, and then what is the ultimate outcome. And in major institutions like higher ed, like uh, public schools, like the healthcare industry, specifically to public health and how we manage population health, And in public safety, the recent social injustice and also how we're transforming our law enforcement work into more community policing, more into deflection. You could call it in some circles, different models of care, but ultimately it's improving upon 
the human interest. And so that's the core of what we do. Awesome. I I love that overview. And yeah, it's just such important work. Having been in the nonprofit space prior to joining Full Stack, I know. Um, and then, you know, some of the bureaucracies that we touch, um, mm-hmm. Full Stack, which will remain nameless. I just think <laughs> there's there's so much room for efficiencies in that space and for the how technology can really transform those industries. And so I, but at the same time, as you know, like, like you said, change is so hard to adopt. And so really walking people, handholding people through that is, is just as important as the solution itself. So yeah, I love that. As a, like to your point, um, we do so much of this blame game, but I like to take it from a different perspective where as a systems builder, if you have a large number of processes, that is a system. And if you don't continuously look at innovation and change within those processes towards a lens of equity, inclusion, and improvement, then your system itself and the way that it's designed becomes a barrier. And so oftentimes we like to kind of ad hominem and go, oh, well, it's that guy and this person and the way that they do things. But really, it truly is about leadership when it comes to systems redesign, because leaders and pe- that are people have to make the decision to say, we're going to be courageous. And yes, this is the way we do things now, but we're going to be open about here's where we can improve. Here's where we need to do things better. Here's how we need to serve people better, right? If we're in healthcare, here's how we need to educate people better. And here's how we can really protect people better in public safety. And so we come back to the formative mission, vision, and values of those organizations. It is about looking at what is the day-to-day, what are the processes that we have, what are the processes that we don't have and need, and what is ultimately the continuous improvement towards our system of change that helps us to include more people that we're serving people that we're not serving and ultimately looking at the equalizer of how do we support our clientele, our participants, our patients, insert type of client, right? How do we do that better? And, um, you know, my hat's off to you from going from nonprofit to a technology company that is doing a lot of that work and just simplifying how do we collect that data to showcase process efficiencies. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, we could probably talk for a while just about <laughs> what you mentioned on, on the blame game. Cause I think when you're a small company or a nonprofit and you are, are working with, you know, large government institutions that, or large corporations that dictate a lot of your business, you know, or, or your organization, it's, it, it becomes really easy to be the small person, you know, that says, oh, this is the reason that this is so broken or meets, you know, my life is so difficult, but I, I love what you said about just the ownership and how can we choose instead of the blame game to be a part of the solution. So absolutely. I think we could talk a whole podcast on that alone. <laughs> but yeah, today I'd love to hear the story of, you know, the person behind TechServe that being you and in, in your journey. You use the word courage and I I find that it takes for most entrepreneurs like you, it takes a lot of courage, especially initially, just to step out and say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave, you know, the comfort of where I was prior to jump out and and do something risky. And so, like, talk about that that story for you and 
how that came about. Yeah. So I will say that I was a coward for 20 years <laughs> um, and was in the safety of uh, mid-sized companies and earning a salary, building a team, but really utilizing really intrapreneurial venture funding, really no impact to myself or my family from uh, a financial perspective. But I say that because anytime you say there's courage or there's cowardness, there's a comparative, right? And so I kind of lovingly call myself a coward the first 20 years because my grandparents and my parents are, are all serial entrepreneurs. And so having grown up in that environment, which was truly feast and famine, right? Um, it was something that I said, I don't love this as a child. <laughs> and I don't love this when I was an undergrad at Purdue and I'm getting a phone call going, hey, we don't know how we're going to make your tuition payment. Uh, because the, the we need cash flow to support X, Y, and Z company. And so I didn't love that, did not at all. As a young person, just watching the struggle of entrepreneurship as a child with the formative lens of that perspective on how, how hard it was for my parents as both immigrants, entrepreneurs, and folks that really battled some serious discrimination. Probably for another podcast at another time, I can discuss, you know, we, my father's company uh, was a headliner for uh, Chicago Tribune articles for many, many weeks uh, because he was a whistleblower. And he, in, in that whole other context, again, story for another time, we had just the experience of having, you know, journalists and reporters camped out on our lawn, right? So for me, in the history of entrepreneurship in my family, I looked at the negatives. You're a public persona, right? Just as much as you are positioning and supporting your goods and services in your company, you also have to step out and lead because business is still about relationships. And the second thing is on entrepreneurship, uh, unless you've gotten a very steady state, it is always about cash flow. And even if you're doing well and, and you have good clients, good revenues, that next step, right? That next big hire, that next big project still requires good formation on what that capital structuring looks like. So there's always that next leap. So for me, when I look at those two contexts about you having to be a public persona, and it's always a capital game, I thought, you know, I'm just going to park it in, in good old corporate America, get the salary, get the 401k and all the benefits and just like, just enjoy it. But I think you know, there really is a calling to entrepreneurship. Um, my grandparents' calling to entrepreneurship was because they had just an incredible formative time to be alive and create pretty much anything new, right? So my grandparents were entrepreneurs in the time frame of really the mid to late 40s through the early 80s, right? So my grandmother founded TechServe. So if you think about the technology innovation that, you know, we're literally creating new countries and political systems, right? During the forties to the eighties, that was like, wow, that is so cool. You guys are experiencing so many things new and novel. And then my parents as serial entrepreneurs really focused on some very specific industries. So my dad was a computer scientist. Uh, my mom uh, was focused in accounting. So they really built their companies focused on technology deployment 
Um, personal computing was on the rise, right, in the late 80s, early 90s. So they caught a wave that technology afforded them. And my mom really was acting as like procurement sourcing and so forth. And they built companies out of that, that serve Chicago public school systems, um, serve technology deployment for a lot of the major uh, utilities and transportation uh, within the state of Illinois. And so when it got to me in entrepreneurship, I'm like, I don't really have a calling. I I don't want to just do it just to do it. Right. And for me, it was more of a self-preservation and safety to be like, uh, yes, they, grandparents, parents all did great things, but I, I don't really have a background that would apply towards entrepreneurship. And so much of what I've discussed with my grandparents and parents were external factors, positioning them in such a way that they could explore and leverage their background and experience towards a entrepreneurship calling and ultimately effectively crafting that into a company that provided goods and services. And I, I'm standing here going, no, I don't know what that is. So <laughs> I kind of eschewed the entrepreneurship. I thought about it, had many different business ideas over the years, played in the entrepreneurial sandbox at my former employer. But I'm kind of a, I like steady state. I like um, consistency uh, and so forth. In when I look at it from a financial driver's, financial decision-making perspective. But as a idea person, I would say I'm very innovative, very, of course we can do that. And people are looking at me like, you're crazy. So I needed that foundation to make sure that I and my family were stable before I really felt I could make this brave leap into entrepreneurship. And even then, I would say that in lovingly calling myself a coward, I still didn't really make the leap myself. The story is from my lens. Um, I had been at Telemon for 13 years and ultimately became a, a vice president there. And great, incredible humans in that company. Uh, Albert China is a long term uh, mentor. And, and now I can say, you know, um, good friend and just an incredible pillar of our community. And he came to me in that 13th year and he said, after giving me lots of different opportunities over the years, which I really took, applied, and just like grew those particular projects and divisions and um, teams, he said, you know, you know what you're doing. You should go do it. And I was like, is he telling me that I'm fired or laid off? Because this is like <laughs> the nicest way I've ever heard anyone say that, right? So I'm like, yes, I, I know what we're doing now is not really in alignment with... Um, the company strategies, what the board wants to do and so forth. And so his next words to me were incredible. He goes, so buy it from me and do it yourself. And I, I, I'm I, like, I know English is my second language, but I don't understand those words that you just said <laughs> to me. Buy it from me and do it yourself. So he goes, yeah, just go home, think on it. So I um, am not a fast runner, but over the years really have developed when I run, I think the best. And so I went home and I went home to Naperville and I actually ran my old high school route just to think about what does this look like in leaving a company that I've been with that really was a formative, I, I lovingly call it Telemann University uh, many times because it, there was so many experiences and exposure that really taught me personnel management, how to be a leader, operations management. Um, how to really measure uh, productivity and look at 
process change and efficiencies, and ultimately how to grow a company and really share your ideas so that people are are captivated and helping not just specifically you or your team, but the greater goal, the greater good. And so I I ran and ran and I thought about it and talked to my husband, talked to my parents. And I said, I think I'm going to do this, but I'm scared. I'm really scared. And, you know, Daniel, to every entrepreneur out there that started with literally nothing and was employee one, uh, my hat's off to you folks, because that that's true courage. I bought a book of business that I had had the opportunity to build in-house that had a very strong cash flow for just looking at entrepreneurial ventures. I left with a team, right, that had been with me an average of five years at the time. And I had enough um, saved over the years uh, and also enough in my own personal portfolio to say, hey, team, I'm committing to you. That, Like I shared with them, I'm like, worst case scenario, this is what I'm willing to pull out of my 401k to fund this company if we don't have the cash flow. And just that, that transparency in that conversation, but we didn't create it out of nothing, right? We ultimately had these opportunities. And what I did and I continue to do is I continued to honor my team in their passions. Because if Albert hadn't really pushed me to say, buy it from me and do it yourself, I don't think I would have made that leap. Right. And so he gave me the opportunity, but also gave me the runway to go forth and do that. And so what I did is after that run, I talked to my parents and they were a little bit smug about it because they had known that this was coming. Like my dad for years and years had been like, when are you going to leave Telemann? When are you going <laughs> to start your own thing? What are you going to, when are you going to um, take over the company businesses and so on and so forth? I'm like, dad, stop. So I came back from this run and I go, oh man, but you know, we have government contracts at uh, Telemann's healthcare division that require uh, minority business certification. And so then my parents start laughing because TechServe is a national women-owned and a multi-state minority business um, certified company. And so I go, great. I feel like you guys have the answers. Why don't you give them to me? And in kind of <laughs> traditional parent and entrepreneurial fashion, they're like, no, you'll figure it out. Um, but if you want to, you, you know, take some of these assets here and, and do that. So we ended up doing a personal acquisition, a management buyout of the healthcare division I started at Telmon. We merged it with the TechServe as an organization. So I essentially brought that back in and it was an M&A. And it was a, it was a very... At the time, like, what? This group does technology and support for um, higher ed. And this group does <laughs> healthcare systems. And uh, really, we had our own case management system on that side. It's like, how do these two things even, even cobble together? So I would say for any entrepreneur out there, if you have the opportunity to start fresh, really think through clear purpose and direction. I was benefited in having a book of business, having um, cash flow, having the support, but it was a two-year effort to pull two totally distinct organizations under one umbrella. And um, during that two years, I thought I would have all of this energy and time and an opportunity to afford in doing um, core M&A work, which I had done um, at Telemann with some of the largest projects. So largest projects in Fortune 100 companies. So bridging 
Motorola's government affairs, um, working on the first ever Android phone that was released uh, in the country in partnership with Google and HTC, going through and, and just working on FirstNet, so the public safety AT&T spectrum that provides first responders their own channel when disasters happen. Like all of that still didn't really prepare me for what happened. <laughs> so here's the timeline. 2018 May, um, we finished all of the MA work, et cetera. 2019, we're about we're going through and um, I'm learning more on the portfolio on the tech service side, bridging and adding more government contracts on the um, healthcare side. And then late 2019, after 10 years of marriage, I find out that we're expecting our first child. So I literally have a baby already, right? This business. Yep. I'm going, oh my goodness, uh, I'm going to be a first time parent uh, of an infant. I have uh, a wonderful stepson, but my stepson and I met each other when he was nine. So I didn't have like the infant years, right? And I'm going, oh, this is going to be different. And then I had Augie January of 2020 and we entered the pandemic. So that is not the best developmental time frame for, even though it's not a true startup startup uh, and M&A and, and development of you know core strategy and <laughs> two very distinct companies together. But I have a great team and that whole journey through pregnancy and motherhood, I feel like helped to build a stronger team. I, I love getting into the weeds. I'm not a micromanager and my team will tell you that I'm not a micromanager, but I love getting into the business, right? Like I love working on our projects. And so it, that time frame that I had to be away really allowed our team to explore what they're interested in, explore what additional capacities and skill sets that they wanted to add and really just do the work, which was very exciting. Because I think when you have a project management consulting company, there's really no wrong or right way to do things. It's what's in the mutual benefit of all stakeholders involved. And then what's the most best fit and most efficient pathway for the budget that you have available. And so that was exciting. And I, I just looked at it as it was a good lesson for me, even today, because, you know, Augie's turning three at the end of this month, even today to say, you spent 13 years working around the clock. So I, I oversaw a 24 by seven organization and I would always take Christmas Eve and Christmas day so that my team then could spend that with their families. But we were 24 by seven. We, we never took a day off. And so just having lived that for 13 years and then now looking at you know my young child and how I wanted to build our family dynamics and kind of learning from my own mistakes of how much I worked when Hayden was growing up. So I have a 22-year-old and a two-year-old <laughs> that I really had an opportunity as really kind of a second chance to say, here's how I would do it differently now that we're literally starting over um, with another kid. And so a lot of this company, a lot of uh, myself is, has been very much uh, a humbling experience of watching what others have done being able to, in hindsight, say, yes, I would want to do this differently. And then applying that not only to myself, but to my team and how we as a company do business. I love that. Yeah, that that story is powerful. And I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And the thing that struck me, especially 
near what you said at the end. I mean, and it, it's twofold, interestingly, with just, you know, both stepping into the unknown of running a company and then secondly, stepping in the unknown of, you know, bringing uh, an infant into the world and, and parenting <laughs> him. And I'm just curious, like most people, when they share that story of stepping into the unknown and taking those risks, you know, both both with a comp- company baby as well as like the physical biological baby you learn things about yourself that you didn't realize before yes. and then some of those things are positive and some of those things are not not necessarily negative but they're exposing of you know areas that you need to to grow and develop and so i'm curious if you could share a couple examples of like what you learned about yourself when you stepped into those places of that were unknown to you before yeah i uh, one um, specific example would be that it wasn't unknown to those around me, but it was unknown to me. When I worked within a corporate environment, because I didn't have children, I was always available. And because I ran one of our 24 by 7 operations, I was very, very literally physically visible in the building all the time. And then also very um, digitally visible because we had a big crew um, at the peak of that organization. We of, of my division, we had 240 folks, and so it, it was very, very visible. And what was an unknown to me is that my level of work access and work visibility was actually toxic to other leaders because other leaders didn't have the time that I had. Um, nor, and I would say lovingly to them, they had a good work-life balance, which is what people should have, right? And so to me, that was a very good learning that in my own company, I am not the standard of work. And that's important to me to share to others that if that's not yet known to you, and if you're unintentionally creating a toxic culture because you love your work and you're passionate about your work and you like doing your work, that's great. But whatever you do that's visible to your team is the bar that you set either unintentionally or intentionally. You know, I've had um, lots of colleagues over the years now that I've left certain organizations or now that I've started my own that, you know, they, they send me these very kind, but also very, hmm, I would say, um, real LinkedIn messages to say, hey, I, I'm so glad to see you guys growing. So glad that TechServe is doing well. Um, you've always had an incredible work ethic and just glad to, that you're doing this with another organization, building jobs and so forth. And, and now I'm thoughtful in my response to say, I'm, thank you so much for having recognized that. But actually, I realized that that was not the healthiest culture. And I realized that it's better that where I have it now. And it's good that I have wonderful priorities like Augie. He's not a distraction, right? He's a wonderful priority. And although sometimes I feel stressed, I still have to remember that I have 16 summers left with him before he goes to college, before I can actually quote unquote control his summers, right? (laughs) And I have so much limited time And I really have to think thoughtfully about what those priorities are. And so I would say that one major unknown to me in growth that I've seen myself as a leader is that your impact of what you love and what you spend time on at work should be visible to your team members during their work hours. 
And if you love it, and if you're thinking about things and you're doing things, send an email, but delay that email send, delay that scheduling so that people don't come back and go, oh my gosh, I have this much, right? Or that they're not getting emails at 2 a.m. And, or also think about if you're really excited about something, temper that to say, yes, you're excited, but is that person (laughs) going to be excited getting a phone call from you at 7 p.m.? Can it wait, right? Is the priority your idea or is the priority the health of your team member and colleague? So that's probably, I would say, the greatest learning, having managed different sized teams and different caliber of work. Because especially in post-pandemic, we've really divided ourselves amongst what industries can remote work at home and what industries can't. And so if you're giving incentive and benefits um, for those that are remote work at home, what, what do you do? for those that that are still working in the workplace and what industries have to capitalize on, okay, how do I entice workers to come in and work in the workplace, but how do I also honor that they have a good work-life balance um, ongoing? Yeah, that's that's such a good word. And I think um, Dawn, my, our co-founder at Fullstack and our CEO, she, she and I talk a lot about work-life integration um, because we both we both have young kids like you and, you know, we've been, we've been leading a company from the ground up her for five years now, you know, me for the last four. And, um, it's like, I had to take my daughter to a morning full of appointments and running to prescript, like to get prescriptions the other day, you know, when she was sick and I'm thinking about work at home and I'm thinking about home at work. And so it's like, how do we, how do we juggle that? And I, it sounds like for you, you've just embraced in this new season, as you you have the ability to set the trajectory for the culture at TechServe, it's it's almost like Augie was a gift to you to yes. to really help you in that in your evolution, but then also you know to have greater empathy with you know those on your team that not just that have kids, but that have have other stuff going on that are priorities for them outside of work. You know, absolutely, absolutely. First off, your daughter's better now. Yeah. So I I um, am thankful for our many many companies that honor recognize parents that um, your your family your health and your family's health are the most important. And then I just want to offer that any organization that doesn't see that as the most important is not an organization that I want to work for or that I want to belong to. So at TechServe, what we do. Um, and it may not work for everyone. Again, TechServe is a project management consultant company, so we can have a full remote work at home workforce. And I know that there are limitations and logistics um, needs in other industries that just can't abide by that. But for our team, there's there's kind of certain rule sets that we have. I just want to make sure that people are on time and prepared for meetings. I want to make sure that people. Um, have good communication and visibility into what they're working on from a collaboration perspective, not from a, what is this person doing today, right? I don't have time to micromanage people, nor do I care when they do the work, right? That's just the reality. Because again, but that's because our industry affords that. And then I don't like meetings for the sake of meetings. If we're going to cover something, great. Otherwise, we have all these different communication tools, email, chat, Slack, Asana, project management, 
our various portals and so forth. So our tech serve culture is if you can't show up for a meeting, then provide your inputs beforehand in writing. Or if a meeting needs to be rescheduled or it's no longer needed, then just cancel it. I don't want to sit on something that isn't one prepared or isn't too productive. Um, we have lots of young families and folks that are older that have appointments that they need to go to for you know prevent health prevention, uh, preventative health, and for managing you know kind of some some chronic conditions. And so my consideration is put it on your calendar. Like I'm not going to look at the calendar to say, oh, how much time are you spending on X, Y, and Z. I'm going to look at it so that when we need to schedule something, you're, we actually know your availability, right? So we have a very, very strong calendar culture in um, TechServe where it's like, you can see, you know, typically people just put in appointment and then there's travel time before and after. I don't calculate whether or not you put 40 hours worth of work in on a week because I don't care, right? At the end of the day, if I don't trust you, you shouldn't be in my company. So if I say assumptively that I trust you and you are always on deadline and communicative, then that's a really good working environment. Ever so often, um, I do have to kick people offline. Like I'm like, it's a holiday. We have a two-week holiday. Why are you working? And then I have to remind myself like, oh, I'm also on here and they can see that I'm here. So I have to go on stealth mode <laughs> or whatever the case might be. But I, I'm at a time in my career at this particular industry and at an age, so I'm 40, and with um, both a college-age student and um, a two-year-old, that I need more than just running a company day-to-day that is just checking the box or that people are just doing you know, minimal effort. So I have to, one, trust my employees that I hire, that they're doing good work and they want to do that work. And that, two, that they're going to manage their time their work and their lives. That's so good. Yeah. And I think I'll, I have one last question, which is kind of fun, but it's also purposeful. But before I do that, I think I wanted to say too, that this is probably the first show that I've done. I've recorded a bunch of them where you literally answered all of my questions that <laughs> are typically in the, like the template without me asking it, which I really appreciate it because you shared from a personal and vulnerable space of your your journey from savage to sage. And we we use that metaphor because, you know, stepping out into the unknown, even though your journey is different than entrepreneurs that started from scratch, you know, um, it still requires savagery to just a lot of time, a lot of intensity and effort um, in those early days, especially. But then hopefully as you as you grow and evolve, as all of us grow and evolve, you know, we become more of that sage and have a lot of wisdom and what and what we can offer, you know, and mentor others in. And so thank you. I I really appreciate your time and, and what you've shared. I think it's gonna be very helpful. And the last question is if you had like an hour and a day or you had a day to take off and you could do the thing that you know that's going to recharge you the most to keep going, that, that's going to fill your battery, how would you spend that time? That's a great question. Before I answer that really quickly, I want to just thank you and honor you for just articulating Savage to Sage. And I think that for me, every opportunity, I want to use that to say, everything that you do, it's okay to go on that journey again. I'm not a sage in anything 
until somebody else recognizes that I have value. So the savage component is like just getting it done, the grit to, to continue doing it. That's almost like a reflex. So thank you for saying I'm at the sage <laughs> part, which is greatly appreciated. If I were to do anything uh, in a day, I recharge by uh, getting in a great workout and then sitting and doing nothing in reading a book. So last year, uh, Kindle told me I read 57 books and this is a very wide range of different things, but that's really how I recharge. I have a very hard time shutting it off. Um, we're starting two new companies this year. And I'm really excited about one is a children's program teaching kids um, in through American culture, Chinese. And the second one is um, a long time love of ours, which is uh, case management and population health, which sounds weird because they're like, how can anyone be passionate about case management and population health? But we're, we're finally spinning off that case management product into its own company. So uh, very excited about those two endeavors, but what, I need to do in order to stop this constant frenzy in here is I just need to lose myself in a good book. Yeah. I love it. Uh, like fiction, nonfiction, sci-fi. What, what are you into? Pretty much everything. Like um, I love a good sci-fi. Um, there's a lot of different names, but Salvatore is one of my favorite authors on the sci-fi side. I love historical fiction. And so it's it's a nonfiction book actually, but it's it's about the history of slavery in America. It's called uh, The Yellow Wife, and I forgot the author's name. It is a very hard book to read. So if anybody wants to pursue that, I I would I would offer that you you need some. I needed some counseling after that after I read wow. that book, and counseling in the context of having conversations with friends of this is part of our national history, and th- this is built on the backs of people that have literally been um, traumatized, um, enslaved, et cetera. I also really like um, just general young adult fiction, not going to lie, <laughs> or um, love like it. novels and stuff. So whatever's out there that the kids love, I'm always like, hmm, I'm going to flip through and see what it looks like. Uh, so uh, you can, if you guys have like listeners have high schoolers, out there that are reading x y and z and you want to be like is this appropriate i'm going to tell you nine times out of ten it's not because the ya (laughs) ya adult books these days i'm like whoa we that whoa that was that was a lot (laughs) yeah um it's important to read current authors to understand kind of where we're going in our pop culture and kind of our social political climate yeah and i i agree and i I do that as well, specifically with fiction, just to, you know, shut off business monkey mind at night in particular before bed. So that's awesome. So people want to get in touch with you and TechServe, where would you point them? Yeah. So I actually, um, LinkedIn has, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can just DM me on LinkedIn and nine times out of 10, I will send you directly a Calendly with a opportunity to schedule 30 minutes with me. And then the other uh, one out of 10 times, I'll be like, yes, I want to talk to you and let's grab coffee, lunch, dinner, et cetera. Um, And those typically, those type of interactions are the ones that are people that really have something to put forth and share uh, within our industries of public health, public safety and education. Awesome. Thank you, Sunny Lou. I really appreciate your time today and 
again, sharing your story. So thank you. This was fun. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for continuing to do this. I've had a good time watching other sages in our community on your podcast. So please continue doing what you're doing. This has been awesome. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.